Hello everyone and welcome to the very 46th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 9th of December 2021. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And I think this might be our first three country podcast. Oh, possibly. Because I am in... Portugal. I have never been to Portugal before. Portugal is very nice. Um, I've mostly seen the inside of a hotel because that's the way it works, but I have seen Portugal a bit and I've had some very good meals. Um, Somebody lent us, somebody basically took us into a restaurant where they had to, we all had to, to get into the restaurant, show our vaccination status or recent lateral flow tests and it was the most science fiction experience i've had for a little while not necessarily in a great way but then they served us very large chunks of cow apologies to any vegans in the audience maybe we need a content warning um but it's been very good um and also john's app tells me i'm an alcoholic um so for those who for those who don't know uh, which I think probably is most of our listenership, uh, except for Claire Briley of Croydon. I have written an app that helps you track your alcohol consumption, and I gave Alison the beta uh, the day that she went to a convention, because I am uh, what is technically referred to as a bad friend. As a result of having an app that tracks your alcohol consumption, um, I know that when I sit up late in the bar and say, I sat up very late in the bar, but I didn't really drink all that much. I was mostly just chatting and drinking water. That is what is technically known as a lie. And so far, I've had the app for two days, but I've now had three consecutive days where I have drunk more than the UK government's recommended weekly intake of alcohol on each of the three days. So I'm slightly worried about that, but not very because it will wear off next week and then there's Christmas, oh dear. Yeah, I, I had a similar I had a similar experience at Corflo and Novacon where I was like, oh, that's how much I drink at a convention. Well, golly. It's a good app. It'll be out of beta at some point and we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely plug it. But, it's good to <laughs> but it wasn't helped by the fact that James Bacon, oh dear. who is one of the chairs of this convention, has been plying me quite a lot. So he, there was a lot of port. And I like port a lot. There was port and cheese, and I, I really, honestly... Well, you are in Portugal. I am in Portugal, and it is the local... I have to sample the local delicacies, which in this case is port. And um, when we ran out, we, we drank the hotel out of cheap, cheap ruby port. So then we drank quite a bit of white port. Oh, no. And then there's been some shenanigans with, with um, the surplus from Dublin in 2019 as well. Irish Bonhomie, I think we call it in fanzines. So Smofcon is great. Um, it's been um, grand, it has, yeah. John, does your app have any social features so that you can wander around an Eastercon bar and know what everyone else, how much everyone else has been drinking as well? No, no it does not, because that is, I think, what, what would be called a privacy nightmare. <laughs> <gasps> oh. Well, we've got untapped anyway, don't we? So, I went to SmofCon, uh, by which I mean I was on a panel. I did not actually attend any of the kind of convention. I just appeared on a panel as a sort of um, informed person, which is a bit weird. What were you informed about? I was informed about the role of publications. 
the people who are listening to this may know I have opinions about uh, from uh, my opinions about them in previous episodes. Um, but basically, it was me and Case Van Torn and Marcin Clack and Sarah Felix who moderated. And we had a jolly good discussion in which I think I was the person most in favour of electronic things on the panel because Marcin is quite a big fan of physical artefacts uh, and Case Case is also kind of a big fan of, of printing things out. Um, but no, I thought it was a good panel. And Sarah, I think Sarah is less of a fan of printing things out, but she she is a very great fan of having all of the previous work lined up neatly on her bookshelves so that she can get design inspiration from things that people have done before so I, I feel like you were the yeah you were definitely the most pro-electronic of the people on the panel and it was a good panel I've been on a panel about um overworking at conventions which was sparsely attended and that's because there are about 50 people in here in person and they and then there's more people online obviously but there are there are often four streams running simultaneously and I'm here to say publicly Smofcon, that is too many streams, even if you are a, quote, program-heavy convention. You should be having fewer, better program items. I know that I say this to all the conventions except Corflu, which only have five program items. But Corflu and Smofcon are not dissimilar in size, and Smofcon has ten times as much program as Corflu did. Um, and, the, and the ideal amount of program is almost certainly somewhere between those two, even if you're quite a program-heavy convention, because we, were, we did a perfectly good panel to a room of about four people. Just to say, it would be difficult to advise Corflu to have smaller, better program because Corflu had about three program items and two of those were meals. Also, how, how much has Smofcon been affected by travel difficulties? I mean, how many people had to drop out last minute? Because I saw quite oh, a few. Lots. Oh, lots. And they lost quite a few last week. I mean, so one of the things that's been very interesting about Smofcon is that over the course of this weekend, everybody's return travel arrangements have been disrupted by change testing requirements in the country that they are flying to when they fly home. Almost everyone I know in the UK has texted me in the last 24 hours to say, when are you returning? Because did you know that? And I'm like, yes, I did know that. I am returning four hours and 20 minutes before the requirement for a pre-test comes into force. So hopefully, unless we're very, very late, we will not have to have a lateral flow test at the airport. We will just have PCRs when we get home. So the other thing I wanted to say about SMOFCON is that it's a really good example about a convention that's had to take very careful account of the need to keep all of its members safe because there's, there are a lot of strains of Worldcon at this convention and if you're not very careful, you're likely to catch one, including Marguerite Smith, who was our guest last time, who is who has spent quite a lot of the weekend going, oh, it's only two weeks. Mary Robinette Cowell came on, to the, um, came on and gave us a presentation about DISCON in which she said, this convention is cursed and we are giving it an exorcism. So you should all have protective amulets to help DISCON. But there are many strains of Worldcon circulating. There is a particularly virulent Glasgow in 2024 strain, which many of the people here are infected with. I recommend social distancing for avoiding infection with Worldcon. Just don't go anywhere near anyone who's got it. I, I'm lucky in that I, I have some residual immunity from, from London in 2014 that's just not quite worn off completely yet. So that's why you're only working on one Worldcon? I'm only working, and I'm only very, very slightly working on Glasgow, that's right. So that's my third convention in six weeks, which is very strange. 
I had a notion of what SMOFCON would be like. I've never been to a SMOFCON in person. I'm at SMOFCON, as regular listeners would know, because of the auspices of Dublin in 2019, which decided to use some of its surplus to encourage con runners from around the world to come to SMOFCON. The average age of the SMOFCON crowd is about half what I was expecting. And there are a lot of fans from around Europe who are talking about their conventions in their area are talking about what they're doing locally i have plans to maybe run a year on it's just a much younger and more diverse crowd than i was expecting it to be and it's been great our sponsor for octothorpe is once again stow shirts reminding you that you can just about get shirts for christmas as long as you choose rush shipping Our chapter art features listener Gwen wearing the Spaceman from the Punctuation logo by Sue Mason. Gwen says this is her favourite sweatshirt and people are always asking her where she got it. It turns out it's not a secret. You can get it and many more lovely things from the Octothorpe shop at octothorpe.stowshirts.com. I'm actually wearing this sweatshirt right now and it is extremely comfortable and very natty. Use code OCTOTHORPE for a 10% discount. Thank you to Gwen for letting us use her photo and thank you to Stow Shirts for sponsoring the podcast. We held off on discussing World Fantasy Con's single COVID case because we were at Novacon and we didn't know how Novacon would interact with COVID. And it turned out that Novacon interacted with COVID enthusiastically, I would say. So... Liz, as our resident biology person and COVID expert... Novacon. So Novacon was a convention that happened and I I was not there, the two of you were. The report seemed to be quite good about, you know, everyone was vaccinated, lots of people did tests before they went, a lot of mask wearing. Uh, uh, Okay, no, everyone was not vaccinated. Let's be clear here. Everyone was asked to be vaccinated, but nobody checked anything. Yeah. This is a major problem, I think, in um, in the strategy, is it was very much done on the honour system. So what, what we know is that after Novacon, there were, I think, eight or nine people that we know of who had positive tests, and it's plausible, based on the time frame, that they were infected at Novacon. And given that sort of cluster around a single event, um, it, it does seem quite plausible that the, the infection did happen at Novacon. Yeah, which is obviously not a great outcome for your for your convention. And there were also a couple of people at Novacon who were definitely showing symptoms which are compatible with COVID. Those people were testing negative regularly. I think this is really important to to stress that that the a lot of people were testing negative all the way through the convention. And yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to stress, but. My general feelings on lateral flow tests are they catch the people who are most infectious. And we don't really know any, like, chains of infection here. We can say it seems like these people were probably infected at Novacon, but we don't know how. We don't know if it was another attendee at Novacon. We don't know if it was, you know, anyone else they met while they were at Novacon or while out in Nottingham. Buxton. Okay, it was in Buxton this time. I don't know. I didn't go. They're all the same... I was, and I'm working on a, a fanzine article about this, but I, I am of the opinion that the they had said that people should have the NHS COVID pass before arriving, which obviously means that either you've had two um, doses of the vaccine or you've tested negative on a PCR or you've tested negative on an NFT within some time frame. And we'll put a link in the show notes so that 
eager listeners can go and read more about that. I do think it's become clear, especially in the last month, like since Novacon, that two doses of the vaccine does not actually necessarily give you as good an immunity as we would like. And this is why we are currently having a large discussion about boosters and things like that. And I do wonder whether the next conventions um, to run kind of post boosters and Omicron may need to consider whether or not they want to mandate negative tests and vaccination rather than either or. For instance, I've had both jabs of the vaccine, but my last dose was in July, and I don't know what that means for my immunity at Novacon, whereas Alison had had her third jab like two weeks before Novacon, and so was probably a, a lot less at risk than I was. Um, now, obviously, I'm a lot younger, so like I wasn't particularly worried on a personal level. But yeah, I, I just, I do wonder whether what we had been saying kind of before the convention season started, maybe that was a bit too simplistic, and maybe we need to be looking at at mandating negative tests and vaccinations rather than rather than doing all um but i don't know yeah i think eastercon's thinking about this i i am also slightly concerned that there's a model that seems to be standard for events where we say oh well when we're actually in the like the program rooms everyone will be masked and we will have social distancing and ventilation and obviously people will take off the masks when they're eating and drinking in a in an assumption that people eat and drink in kind of small contained groups of their personal friends. And then you get people like me, and I, I don't think I'm alone here, who go, oh, Novacon, how many people do I know who will be at Novacon? Oh, 171. How many of those can I realistically have an in-depth conversation with over a drink over the course of a weekend. Um, I think we have a word for people like me. And I think that's also true at things like Smofcon. So, so if, if, you're, if you have a lot of people whose purpose in going to a convention is to talk to as many of their friends in, in lengthy conversations as possible, I think that does make it quite hard, um, even with vaccinations and negative tests and social distancing and aeration i think there's only so much that you can do i think the other thing i will say is um there are a couple of things i think novacon there was one thing i think novacon did which i don't think helped and then there was one thing i think that we could do as a community which i think would help which is um so starting with the community one i think if you are if you're in the bar and not drinking i think we do need to normalize mask wearing kind of even in kind of static social groups i mean and i speak as someone who has trouble hearing people speaking through masks i do appreciate it makes conversations harder and i don't like it but i do like covid less so on balance i think i do think i was i was wearing my mask when i didn't have a pint in front of me and, and trying to trying to make sure that i was doing that the other thing novacon did that i think may have been unhelpful was they did have several program items which were everyone come to this giant room and drink in 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 it for a while and I'm not sure, like, whether or not that was good practice necessarily. It was very fun, but I just, I wonder whether they'd have been better off instead of having a big party where there was free wine in the program room saying, oh, we've put some money behind each of the bars and you can just kind of wander up and get a drink with, like, a token that you found in your membership pack or something instead. Because it was fun, but I, I did think at the time is this actually a sensible program item to have at the moment? And I do wonder whether the answer was no, but... 
Smothcon also has programs of this kind, but I think the other thing about Smothcon is it's a very small convention again, and I think being physically a smaller convention makes all of this much better still. We are still probably rolling in a bucket of each other's germs, though Portugal much safer in lots of ways. Big airy bar rather than small, comfortable, badly ventilated bar, that sort of thing. I think the thing is you can never make anything, you can't make anything 100% safe. And if we had this level of non-COVID concrud after a Novacon, then we wouldn't find it particularly remarkable. Although I appreciate that, that, that generally a non-COVID concrud doesn't have people feeling quite as bad as some people did after catching COVID. But I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think we have to say, okay, well, we can't be 100% safe, but how can we make this safer? And, you know, you have to base this on what, what the kind of environment is at the time. But I think you're right in that maybe we do need to try and drop the culture where everyone sort of sits around with a pint in a closed room and you are continually kind of drinking your pint without your mask on and say, okay, if we're going to have a really long conversation, maybe it would be better if we went somewhere quiet where we can sit like a metre and a half apart and keep our masks on and have a really long conversation like maybe there is are different models of socializing we should be doing i appreciate that you know in many ways might make things less fun and it might mean that the convention is not fun enough for people to want to go in some cases but i think there probably are ways we could make it slightly slightly better uh, it's also it's very difficult in november it's going to be it'd be a lot better if you were in june and you could actually say right well let's go and like you know sit on a bench outside and have a natter and that kind of thing but you you can't do that sometimes. We spent quite a lot of time at Bristol, either outside or in extremely drafty pub environments. So we, nearly all of the weekend was spent in quite drafty spaces. And then Buxton, one week later, I think we got to the Cheshire Cheese on Saturday lunchtime, took one look at the outside tables and went, oh no. We, we, there is no point avoiding COVID if we catch pneumonia through other routes. I am very different from Alison in this regard in that I went out for my birthday last year and it was about minus two outside and I just wore three jumpers and sat outside. Uh, I have been very much of the opposite opinion which is I would much rather need to warm up when I get home than catch Covid. Yeah you're much less likely to catch pneumonia than me. You're just much less likely. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. But I have bought I have now bought some long johns and some uh, <laughs> merino wool socks. It, I th- and I think something I wanted to bring up is that World Fantasy Con had one case, despite being much bigger than Novacon, despite having a lot of people from disparate places going, which I think is probably because they had a lot more negative tests kind of en route. And so I'm wondering whether having a stronger requirement for negative tests and not just relying on vaccine status would make British conventions safer. And I'm not saying you can make them completely safe, but I am saying that I don't think we have achieved the best safety to compromise ratio we can. I think there are small compromises we can make to increase safety that are probably still worth making. But yeah. I, I am actually not sure World Fantasy was that much bigger than Novacon this year. Oh, interesting. Um, I did go and I mean, I, I went and fished out. I did go and fish out the membership list at some point and take a look at this. But Novacon was unusually big. And I think World Fantasy was unusually small. And possibly that is partly because it is quite difficult to get into Canada at the moment. For instance, I would not have been able to attend World Fantasy, but I could have attended Novacom. Um, I, I think also the US convention spaces are much larger, generally, you know, that the, the Buxton Palace Hotel was very nice, but it was not hugely spacious. So there were things like corridors and and comfortable badly ventilated bars and things like that and we could probably have done more 
I, I'm, I'm on a program item later about hybrid conventions. And one of the things I'm going to be talking about is designing social spaces and the way that we need to we need to be thinking more about how we're designing our social spaces and our social interactions for in-person conventions at the moment than we have been for, for this exact reason. Because I probably shouldn't have been allowed to spend any time unmasked in that library bar that I spent the whole of the Evercon weekend in. I mean, I should say I didn't have any symptoms, didn't catch COVID. I was quite lucky. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. Ultimately, we could have, you know, you could have tried to require like uh, proof of a negative pre-arrival PCR test. But in the end, it's kind of incremental things that may not lead you to definitely prevent an outbreak. Um, so Nic- Nic- Nicholas, who had the most severe of the Novakov co- cases, is very much of the view that he was 100% going to catch this thing at some point and he might as well have some fun while doing it. Um, and I, I definitely, I'm, I'm clearly way over towards the Nicholas end of the scale here, you know. But the thing is that, like, as a direct result of that attitude, Espanya now doesn't want to go to Isacom. <laughs> And so it's all very well for the people whose risk level is such that that's a fine statement for them, but they're pushing people out of the community. And if we can make small compromises that keep those people in the community, we should do that. And I don't think that saying... Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm happy with that. And, and, and Phil Dyson is looking really closely at what they can do, what they can legally do, what they can practically do, and what the community will tolerate in terms of what they're going to say for... For Eastercon, and I would be one hundred percent happy to to have them say you cannot enter this convention unless you have your vax, you have your booster, and uh, or you have a thing saying you can, a medical an NHS actual exemption, and you show a negative a forty eight hour negative test like like is uh, that's what's going on here. I mean, I know that everyone at the convention I'm at here is vaccinated and has has had a recent negative test because that's what you need to show to get into Portugal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would say like, I just want to say that, I mean, I, well, I think when Nicholas is saying, you know, he's prepared to take that risk, what he means is he's prepared to go to conventions. But I think Nicholas saying like, he's going to get it at some point. And so, you know, I don't think that means anything made the convention less safe or that attitude makes it less safe. It's just the difference between am I willing to go to conventions knowing there is a risk or not go? I'm not talking about Nicholas necessarily here. It, it comes back to what you said earlier, Liz, about like we can never make it completely safe, and and I agree that's true. But I think that attitude used to prevent trying is Espania doesn't listen to Octothorpe anymore because she finds our discussions about COVID too stressful because she doesn't think we're taking it seriously enough. And I think part of this is because, I, and I think one of the things I'm coming round to is it's not academic; <laughs> it's a real thing. It, it's it's not like a hypothetical that we can discuss in a scientific context, which is devoid from considerations of personal safety and fear i i very much get frustrated with the i think we do if there are steps that we can be taking to make conventions safer which are not like super onerous like i don't know making everyone lft on the door hang on why, why aren't we making everyone lft on the door john i think we should actually make everyone lft on the door i'd be up i'd do that i'd be up for that 100 percent. well like I mean, like, I don't think we could have, like, the LFTs in the lobby. But I'd like, I'll tell you what else I'd like. I'd like all the hotel staff to wear a mask all the time while they're working. Thank you very much. Yes, that would be good. I need to get more water because it's a very, very, very dry hotel. I'll be back in just a sec. 
I mean, I, I think actually that, yeah, if you made people literally take an LFT at the entry of the hotel when they came in on day one, that actually might be a quite effective thing to do because it removes any uncertainty about, I know, or maybe, you know, maybe you have to do that if you don't have like a negative PCR test from the last 24 hours or something. Because that would probably be more effective at catching infectious people. It's impossible to evade and it probably like gets people right as they appear. I also, I've got an anxiety thing. Uh, apparently, I didn't realise, but it turned, because I'm quite face blind anyway. So um, so one of the things that's happened this weekend is, is the people I have known for many years and seen many times, I have failed to recognise because they are wearing masks and it's been, it's been quite difficult so there's that i mean and, and you can get you would get used to this i'm sure i I, mean, I, will, I will say it is definitely true that like as someone who does sometimes struggle to kind of hear people sorry it is harder to keep up with conversations where people are wearing masks in the bar i i have i have been trying because i do that thing and i suspect many people do this but like where you you say what like twice and then you feel awkward continuing to say what um but i've been trying to be like I've been trying to explain to people, like, I can't hear you. It's tricky. These are all considerations. I should say, and I know I said I wouldn't be at EasterCon. I will be at EasterCon. And one of the reasons I'll be at EasterCon is that I am bidding for the 2023 EasterCon. And a core part of the 2023 bid is the contention that some people, no matter what we do for COVID management and making the convention safer for people, some people will prefer not to come to a physical EasterCon in 2023. And so we need to be designing an EasterCon from the ground up that has both online and in-person elements. And that is so that we are not what I think the thing that John said was driving people away from the community. We are hoping to have people in the community in a variety of different routes. And I think that's really important because there may not be an EasterCon that both Espana and I are happy to attend. And this was something that came up at, on a panel at Novacom. Like one of the panelists at Novacom made some disparaging remark about how like Zoom is like very privileged and like by relying on Zoom, we're like pushing people out. And I was like, yeah, but all of the healthy people getting together in a room is also very privileged. It's just a different privilege. <laughs> like it's there's I think I think using as many streams as you can. Also, I'm here to say this on Octothorpe. I'm reasonably certain I can get you onto Zoom using crap I have lying around my house. And if you're listening to this and you cannot use Zoom because of a lack of access to technology, you know, you need to get in touch and I will sort you out so that you can get on Zoom. <laughs> if you haven't got the internet, then that's a problem. But if you haven't got the internet, I don't think you're listening to Octothorpe. No, I think our listeners probably have a certain amount of technical privilege uh, vested in them. I, I I do like, you know, print out a copy of what you know, we'll print out copies of Octo and put them in the post for you if you'd like. It will just be like a print out of the WAV file, so it might not be very easy to understand. Well, Chris Garcia, who will be listening to this episode, hi Chris, uh, did do a podcast that he recorded on cassette tapes. So Chris, if you want to bootleg this podcast onto cassette tapes and send them to John Hertz, uh, we would be very happy for you to do that. Um, have we have we worked through COVID? Do we have last thoughts on COVID at conventions for the moment? There'll be more, I'm sure. John, can you trim that down? So because I'm pretty sure we said most of that like before, and I'm not sure it's. Oh no, I thought we took it. I thought the stuff about actually getting into the where some people's boundaries are, I think, is really good and new. But it might be quite hard to edit. 
It will be difficult to edit just because it will be difficult to listen back to. I will keep that sentence in the podcast because it is hard to talk about this stuff. Like, it genuinely is scary. It's scary to put... It, it It's scary to have to define and defend your boundaries. You know, this, this is a very new situation we find ourselves in where we suddenly all have this this very big thing in our lives that we all have very different boundaries to and we have to... I think it is difficult to to talk about these things because it's a thing we don't often have to talk about we don't have to talk about like how we are comfortable um and think about why and it's it's hard it's hard to talk about it makes me very anxious to talk about it but i hope it's useful for people listening to hear different people's takes so i hope it was good even if it's stressful it is stressful i think i find it less stressful because i can view it in a more academic way and also because i'm aware there's like I don't know. Lots of diseases I might catch. Um, that's probably not helpful. You know, I'm in a position where one of my close friends from uni is dealing with chemotherapy failing, and my mother has dementia. And I, I feel like we did have ten cases of COVID, but they're all. Everyone there is fine, and. We may at this point be getting to the stage where we are over, people are being overly worried about things that are actually not as likely to kill them or severely limit their lives as the other terrible things that we all have to deal with every day. And and we need to live our lives. And that that is, and, and I'm not by any means advocating massive risk taking here. So um, listeners may not know I have anxiety and one of the things that I found I had a very anxious reaction to having a bad concussion at work a couple of years ago because I was very worried that like basically I was going to have a stroke and die and most of my anxieties do revolve around kind of things that would be life-ending mostly uh, professionally but but sometimes in a health context so it doesn't normally manifest as hypochondria but but the concussion really uh, did a number on me and it is terrifying it was very scary when I was like still having concussion symptoms like three weeks later because I was like this is not I don't like this I don't like the idea that my brain could be doing things it's not supposed to be doing and in some ways it really did and I think this goes a little bit to what Alison was just experiencing, it really did help me with some other things I had been having anxiety about, like realise like, yes, but being afraid of literally dying is very different to being afraid to like having a paper come back with bad comments and it really did recontextualise some stuff kind of that I had been worrying about and so I do take the point that like we do need to be careful that we don't overcorrect in a way that basically means that that we're not kind of copying the DM, as it were. I I mean I I had two things. One is I was I'm curious as to how John managed to get concussed at work because as, as far as I knew, your job mostly involved sitting at computers all day, and now I'm worrying about how I might get a concussion. Maybe if I fall off my desk chair. Um, but I mean, I think the other the other thing is also true in that I think COVID is making everyone reevaluate the risks of various things. And in fact, I think we will have a, a strong reevaluation of things like 
people used to get concrud or the flu or various other viruses and we just sort of like accepted that as a thing and maybe in the future we actually won't accept that as a thing even if covid is you know mostly uh, you know, not an ongoing issue, we might say, well, actually, maybe we should wear masks when in large situations, because it'll stop people getting nasty coughs and colds. You know, I think there's going to be a big reevaluation because I think certainly the UK um, has not been through this kind of multi-year evolving pandemic that most of us can remember. So the point I actually wanted to make was a tiny one about anxiety, which is, I think, one of the things that you see throughout Octothorpe, which is that John is a very anxious person um, who, who has treatment for anxiety. And I am the person who spent six hours in hospital with while I kept going, is it OK if I go home now? And they went, no, we really need to do some more checking to make sure you haven't had a stroke. So people have different risk appetites. And I think that's probably good. <laughs> Some of what people's personal risk appetite is also comes off as not being sufficiently considerate of other people's risk appetites. I think it mostly works one way in that people are, people who are much more concerned about COVID tend to be much more concerned about people who are not taking it seriously, whereas the people who feel that people are taking it too seriously tend to be less bothered because it doesn't make huge differences to them. But it might if you had things like masking in bars and stuff. I don't think people are... I wouldn't say so-and-so is taking it too seriously. That's, you know, what I would say is, because I'm worried about testing not being very reliable. And I might not do two conventions in two weeks again for a very long time. Say for Smofcon, you know, I've been sitting in the house for a week. I could only have got COVID by immaculate conception. I am not infectious at this convention. And that makes me very much more comfortable about sitting up till the bar at three o'clock in the morning talking bollocks. Because the risk I'm taking is the risk I might catch it, not the risk I might spread it. The risk I might spread it is much more worrying to me. And that's why at Novacon, because it turns out it would have been possible for me to catch COVID at Corflu, have no symptoms, test negative continually, and still have spread it at Novacon. I don't think it's very likely, but it's clearly possible. I, I, I am actually more worried about that behaviour now in retrospect. I will say something I I did think of, and I don't know whether I said it on the podcast or whether I said it in a conversation with um, people uh, like at a first Thursday or something, was I was like, I was con a little bit concerned about the week between Corflu and Novacon because I was like, if you get pinged in between, it will be a bit of a, a tricky thing. And I think one of the things COVID is going to do is that kind of will hold a convention a week before in the same country so that people can do both is going to get a lot trickier because you do have that consideration of, well, what if there's an outbreak at convention one? And I, and I do wonder whether that will have an impact on cons kind of for the next couple of years. Um, so I think that is an interesting, uh, interesting thing. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Should you space them apart so you don't end up turning one into a, a spreader event because the other? Yeah. OK, so, so there are several reasons why people are not at SmothCon this weekend. But one of the reasons that people are not here is that people who have large jobs on Discon are like, oh, we would normally fly to SmothCon two weeks before the Worldcon, and we are not doing that because the consequences of catching COVID either en route or at the convention are just too great. And that's perfectly, I think that, uh, that does seem to be like a very sensible risk judgment, but there are people who are not here who we would expect to see because they have to be fit for Discon. And there is one senior member of the Discon team here, and that's why. And um, I'm Doug, are we done with COVID, guys? Yeah, I just, I want to tell Liz how I did my concussion. Oh, God. 
I leant down to get my bag and I hit my head on a shelf at speed and I I don't know if I blacked out but my knees certainly gave out and one minute I was standing up and the next minute I was sitting down and my colleague looked at me and went what just happened and I was like hit my head and then I didn't really get symptoms of a concussion for another few days um and then they stuck around for an enormously long time and I was very worried mostly because they keep saying if you blacked out when you had your concussion it's very important you tell us and I was like I don't know if I did I don't I remember it well enough and many doctors seemed very displeased with that answer uh, i've banged my head on many things many times and never got a concussion so i'm also like now is my head extremely solid or what liz absolute unit batty <laughs> yes we're going to talk about site selection listeners in a ginger style palate cleanser from our pretty serious discussion about covid so i have paid my 50 dollars site selection fee and i have filled in my site selection pdf and i have emailed it to the discon site selection email address and your deadline to complete all of those steps if you so desire is some point on the 14th of december uh, i recommend doing it by the 13th to avoid any time zone based shenanigans especially if you're liz I'm going to suggest that you do it right now. You are listening to Oxthought right now and you should stop what you're doing and sort your site selection ballot out. This will also give you a supporting membership in the new Worldcon, whether it is Chengdu, Chengdu or Winnipeg. And um, I think it's a good thing to do. And it's a bit tedious, the kind of, you know, you print out a PDF and you fill it in and you scan it and you email it. But you have no idea how much better it is than it used to be. We kind of go, we have to reward progress here. One day, one day, Novacon is going to have an electronic hotel booking form. You know, it is a lot better than it was kind of when I entered Worldcon Fandom. Uh, it's still not quite perfect, but it is a lot better. So well done to all involved. Liz, have you got any thoughts on site selection? I just haven't done it yet because I have to, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have a printer or a scanner. I have one in the office, so I'd have to go and use the office one. Oh, well, you so can I... scan it by taking a photograph of it with your phone. Come on, we live in the 21st century. Yeah, but I can't sign it. Yeah, no, you're going to have to print it off. Yeah. I have to print it out to sign it and then take a photo, which is actually, like, at, the, at this point, stricter than, like, when I tried to prove my identity for a bank account at this point. Like, I think I should be able to just stick, a, like, an electronic signature on there and take a photo of it. Well, what I am actually going to do with this form is I'm going to put it onto GoodNotes 5 on my iPad and then I'm going to sign it with my Apple Pencil and then I'm going to send it to them. And if, if they don't, I don't think they'll notice. I think they'll be completely fine with it. I think I have a control file anyway. It'll be fine. I will try sticking an ele- like my electronic signature on there, which is just, you know, an image of my actual signature and send it to them. That's what I did. Tell you what, Liz, you fill it in and send it to me by email and I will sign Liz Batty on it and send it back to you and then you can send it in. Because they don't know what your signature is like. This is not in any way an actual security thing. This is even less secure. I'll just write, just write an X, Liz. Pretend you don't know how to do handwriting. Just put an X on. Oh. (laughs) Right. Are you going to vote for Winnipeg or Chengdu, Liz? Oh, I'm probably going to vote for Winnipeg. I sound very gloomy about that. I'm not actually gloomy. I think the Winnipeg bid pr- looks pretty good. I just think that like the Chengdu bid also looks good. And the reason I'm not voting for Chengdu is not related to the individuals or the like 
facilities they have accumulated on the Worldcon, I think they would be able to run. It's based on whether we should award the Worldcon to China at this moment in time. I am much in the same boat. But in fact, Tony, Tony from the Chengdu bid has been at SMOFCON virtually this weekend. And I've had a number of conversations with SMOFs where they have been... A, Chengdu is kind of like the Austin, Texas of China and is a very cool place. And these are very cool fans and they want to do a very cool convention. But they are, in our view, nowhere ready to do the Worldcon quite yet in a way that is totally different from the conversation about, oh, we also don't want to give it to China because the Chinese government thinks. I, I feel like there is also a bit of, oh, yes, Chengdu, but not yet going on at this Smofcon, which is not... Not where I thought we would be. I thought we would be much more not Chengdu because China. And it's, it's, not, it's not been quite like that. One of the things that you get at Smofcon, which is very exciting if you're a total nerd, is the detailed answers to the um, Spanish Inquisition questions. And they are published and they're on the Smofcon website and you can go and read them all for all bits. And it is really interesting. And the, the Chengdu responses are there and they're, they're quite interesting. But I will be voting for Winnipeg for those reasons. Um, and hopefully the Chinese fans will not be too discouraged by this. And hopefully the Chinese government will put it sacked in order. We're going to have to resolve what we do about that one day. I would say that I think that is interesting because from looking through kind of, you know, the bids, um, stuff they've submitted to Worldcon and their social media and things like to me, it looks like, you know, the Chengdu team would be able to put on a, a pretty good Worldcon, but it sounds like there is kind of more detail that comes out if I had had more conversations with them. And, you know, one reason I haven't done that is because I haven't met the team at any conventions because I haven't been to so any. I'm, yes. So I'm seeing a bit of, we think they could probably put on a good convention, but they do not yet understand enough about what Worldcons need and are like. And we are not sure that they could put on the sort of broad, generalist science fiction convention that Worldcon is. Eh, they could do a different style of convention that would still be Worldcon. Yes, the Smoths are not going to vote for that one, right? It's like if somebody came along and said, yeah, we'd like to bid for Eastercon, but we want it to be a 10,000 person gate show. You know, they could do it as much as they liked, but they would not get the, they, they wouldn't win. While we're on um, topics that are more lighter-hearted topics, I have been bleating on for literally 30 years about the possibility of getting a digital membership of the British Science Fiction Association. So I was thrilled, thrilled, I tell you, listeners, to discover that it is now possible to join the British Science Fiction Association as a digital member. What's the catch, boys and girls? I can do it. You can't do it. <laughs> Well, but Alison is currently international, so if she just joins the BSFA before coming home, I'm sure it's all fine, Liz. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it does say resident in the UK. It does not say on staying in a hotel in Portugal. It is, and I say this with love and a spirit of constructive criticism, bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I so think I BSFA, I if I want PDFs, the fact that I live in the UK should not prevent me from getting PDFs. I do, I do. So I'm pretty sure why they're doing it is because the economics of running the British Science Fiction Association um, rely on the, on the costs of printing a batch of publications. 
And so the thing about printing, as you know, Bob, is that if you do more of it, it doesn't become any, or if you do less of it, it doesn't become any cheaper. That essentially printing about 10 of a thing costs as much as printing 10,000 of a thing, more or less. And so they are worried that if they, they are worried that by giving UK members a lower rate for the digital versions, they won't be able to make the books add up, I assume. But I would be very happy for somebody from the BFFA to come and tell us why they're doing this absolutely appalling thing, which is terrible for the planet. And incidentally, I'm one member who will not join the BSFA because of paper publications, and it's been 30 years, you know. <laughs> I was in the BSFA for two years. I was concerned about the amount of paper I was getting. I was like, can I have a membership with, that, with less paper? And they said no. And they have carried on saying no ever since. And that is what I want. So it, you will gain some members who don't want your paper publications, but would like to be a member of the British Science Fiction Association because we know. Was that ranty enough for you? Yep, yep, yep. Are we going to do? Are we going to do picks? Picks, picks, picks. Do we have any picks? Yeah, but I got a question in the show notes, which is: Did Alison already do Hades, or can I do Hades as a pick? Because I haven't done anything this week. <laughs> you could do Hades as a pick. I think it's quite funny. I, I, I kind of like the way that eventually John will get back into Hades, and then John could do Hades as a pick, and then that'll be three for three. All right, that'll be good. Okay. Nice. Um, who wants to go first? Liz, you can go first. Let us think of picks. Yeah, so I have a pick which may be familiar to listeners of this podcast, but my pick is the video game Hades, because I've been quite busy recently, and then my brain goes, I want a video game which is chewy enough to give me kind of something to think about and something to do, but, you know, I when I my brain is too dead for reading, etc. And so I've been playing Hades, which is great. It is, uh, is it a roguelike? I think that's what you call them. I don't play many of this type of game. It's a, it's a roguelike with metaprogression. It's a roguelike with metaprogression, apparently. Roguelite with metaprogression. It's not a roguelike, it's a roguelite. It's, yeah. Ah. Oh, I see. Yeah. It takes certain, but the internet says that takes certain elements from roguelikes, but it's typically, uh, but it's different. Yeah, basically, I think, yeah, uh, I... I am old and we should stop inventing new categories for games, like four should be enough for anyone. But I am enjoying Hades. You are uh, Prince Zagreus, who is trying to escape from Hades. And basically, every time you try to escape, you get killed. And then next time you get slightly further and then you get killed again. And you kind of, you know, as you do it, you are leveling up and getting better, better weapons, better strategies um, and uncovering the plot as well. I am playing it on God mode because I'm bad at video games. And I would prefer to actually finish this game and see all the stuff that's in it more than I would prefer the challenge of defeating it without any assistance. So basically the game is automatically getting slightly easier for me every time I die. And I really like it because that means it feels like I am getting better when really I'm getting a tiny bit better and the game is getting a tiny bit easier. And so that is a great function. There are many good things about this game, but it has got the best God mode because that is a very, very clever way to do it. And it works very well. It is an incredibly clever way. There are other games, you know, where I will play them on very easy modes if I'm more concerned with the story than the, you know, game mechanics. But here I actually, you know, I do enjoy playing it. I just would not enjoy it if I was dying every 10 minutes, but I do enjoy it when I'm dying every roughly half an hour. Yeah, and I will I will get back with a full verdict when I have escaped, although I sense that may not be the end of the oh. game. 
I did everything in Hades. I did not turn God mode on. I got to the point where I I hadn't explored every single one of the 700,000 voice lines. But, you know, there were a lot. I spent 300 hours on it, so I would not recommend... So God mode would have been a good idea in retrospect. Because 300 hours is a lot. John, a pick. My pick is going to a cottage with my friends for a week and playing board games. Did you have fun? I did. I played lots of board games. It was good. I would specifically like to pick a few of the said board games. So we played a game called Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space, which is a hidden movement game where some people are humans and some people are aliens, but the aliens and humans don't know who the others are at the start of the game and you sort of work it out as you go through and that's very good. I like it a great deal. And it's it's like a uh, you write where you're going on a little dry wipe kind of pad. I think it's out of print, but I found a copy on eBay that looks legit for not too much money. So I'm hoping that it is legit and I don't end up just not getting anything or just getting a moth in a box. I also played a game called Sushi Go Party, which I friggin love. Uh, Highly recommend. If you've played Sushi Go, you should play Sushi Go Party because it's better. Uh, And if you haven't played Sushi Go, you should play Sushi Go Party because it's good. Is Is it better or is it just Sushi Go with more people? It's Sushi Go with more... More stuff. More sushi. Yeah, you shuffle a different deck every time, so the it's not as static. So it's it's better. <gasps> uh, and it's also like nineteen pounds, and it comes in a lovely tin. If I had a complaint about Sushi Go, it would be that my family played Sushi Go enough that we'd kind of done the Sushi Go, and that was not that much play. Yes, Sushi Go party. Basically, you have like you still make a deck with the same like you know two specials, an appetizer, some rolls, etc. But you you have like a vastly higher variety in each deck because each playthrough is different. Um, so yeah, I also have a problem with sushi go in that every time I play it, I am sad because I am not eating sushi, and uh, so that's a problem. There's an easy solution to this. Whereas that doesn't, you know, if I if I play zombie dice, I'm not sad that I'm not being killed by zombies. You know, not that I've played zombie dice. But Meg McDonald was saying you got her into zombie dice. Yep, that's true. Zombie Dice is great. Um, I have recently decluttered some board games. I've recently got rid of uh, King of Tokyo, Luchador, Snake Oil, and Geek Out. Basically because Luchador and King of Tokyo and Zombie Dice are all kind of push-your-luck games, and I kind of eventually decided I would rather have the push-your-luck game that I could carry in my bag and crack out in the pub. And what? And that's Zombie Dice? Zombie Dice, yeah. It's a good it's a good game. It takes about 20 minutes. Um, the components are waterproof and um, it's good in the pub. Yeah, no, um, I think I might have played it. But anyway, I, yeah, I, I, I believe that I might have been drunk when I played it. And I think Meg is getting it out of the pub of the dead dog. So. Hey, good stuff. And the last day was my birthday and my friend bought me the Exit the Game Advent Calendar. And the Exit the Game Advent Calendar is very good. We have been doing puzzles every morning. I say that. We did four puzzles yesterday because that's when I got home. And then we'll do a puzzle today after I podcast. I'm very excited. I like puzzles. I have a genre anti-pick this week. Oh, hello. I, I, we haven't done this before. I think it's okay. I think it's legit, right? And I'm at a convention, so I haven't been thinking very hard about podcasts apart from, you know. Yeah, go on. You can have one. As long as you don't do it every week. So a, a genre anti-pick, which is that Stephen and I have finished the end of the Amazon Prime series. We have finally finished watching The Man in the High Castle of what? after what seems like a decade. And it is like literally the sunk cost fallacy of science fiction television. And I feel like 
I may have been spoilt for science fiction television forever by this series because I think SF Television does this a lot, where it starts off very good and very interesting and very engaging and very evocative. And by the end, there's really not a lot left. And if you look at it, you go, well, this doesn't make any sense. And one of the cool things about this is that I read a review of the last episode of The Man in the High Castle after like a thousand hours of God knows what. And it said... The ending doesn't make any sense. Philip K. Dick would be rolling in his grave. And for if any listeners have not read any Philip K. Dick books, the one thing which you can pretty much guarantee is that when you get to the end of them, you go, oh, wait, that doesn't make any sense. So I feel that making the ending not make terribly much sense is, about, is one of the most consistent things with Dick's oeuvre that we showed it. So I think... I am now worried that all other science fiction that that is longer than, say, Russian Doll has this problem that at some point it skates away from where it was going because they ordered more episodes or they ordered less episodes or they got a series more than they were expecting or they got two series less than they were expecting or or an actor left or an actor demanded more money because he was very good or whatever. And as a result, the thing doesn't hang together as a piece of science fiction. It just kind of plods on for 40 episodes and is that really what you want so i'm like go on listeners tell me what i should be watching on television next and should i do i need to wait till it finishes so i can say oh yes that was a consistent show because the man in the high castle is not a consistent show however it does have lots of good things a lot of the stuff about the worlds that it draws are interesting and continue to be interesting right up to the end but the actual plot and structure make no sense whatsoever what should i be watching well i watched two series of man in the high castle and then stopped so it sounds like i chose wisely good choice good good choice i have not watched any i confess on the subject of long-running tv shows that i think are going to stick the landing the expanse is back next week i believe and i'm excited about that the last series and you'd say it's been sticking things so far would you yeah i in general think the expanse has been in the unusual position that every season has been superior to its previous season. Mm. I think I would say that is broadly true. I think that is true of the books as well. I think I think in general the story of The Expanse gets better when the events of book one have happened and you can start exploring the ramifications in direct contrast to Westworld where they were like, oh, we made season one because we thought you needed the backstory, but the story we really wanted to tell was in season two and three. I watched season one, which was a masterpiece, and then I watched seasons two and three, and I was like, and this is this is the story you're excited about, was it? Hmm. Uh, so yeah, you know. I mean, fun fact, listeners, is that I also watched the first series of Westworld and then stopped. So apparently, I'm just very good at stopping before series get bad. Um, I think Expanse is good, yeah. I mean, I think, in a way, The Expanse has the same thing, where if you watch the first series, it feels like it has two fairly bland white guy protagonists. But actually, the later seasons get much deeper. And in fact, I think those characters themselves become more interesting and also other characters uh, become more prominent. And it is also interesting that they definitely pulled some characters who kind of appear later in the books into the earlier seasons to give it a bit more interest and a bit more more depth, I think. But yeah, I, th- I think it's mostly been sticking them. I uh, wasn't that taken with that series where, um, oh, they're on a planet with mean owen from torchwood or whatever you think that season you think that season in the tv was dodgy you should read the book i I bloody love that book uh it i think it's fair to say divided opinion (laughs) but yeah in general 
I think the expanse. I don't think the put it this way. I think you you even if you don't love season four, I think in general the expanse is not. Um, it is definitely telling the story it wanted to tell. I mean, part of this is because if you are the favorite TV show of Jeff Bezos, presumably you get the support you need to continue telling the story you want to tell until you've finished telling it. Uh, and so, like, I'm not advocating all art moves back to the medieval patronage uh, model, uh, but clearly it benefits some arts in some situations. Thanks, Jeff. I mean, screw him for everything else he does, but this one thing, hurrah. I might cut that out. Yes. That was the Octopus Podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. I, th- I think it's much more difficult, but that's also... Sorry, can you actually see me? I've turned the lamps on, but I'm a bit dark. Um, I love that. So, so one of the key things about this podcast is that Liz has gone. Liz is sitting outside and it has become dark while Liz has been sitting outside today, listeners. And my fancy lights come on. And she has tiny lights and they're very good. They're solar powered. In my view, it, came, it became dark quite suddenly. Yes. No, not doing it. Um, they are actually they are actually solar powered lights, so they charge up all day and then they come on in the evening for an hour or two. We we have them in our garden, which is significantly colder than this is. Yeah, probably also significantly less sun time to charge them up. The theme music for this episode was "Fanfare for Space" by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.